time today with uh, the consummate southern gentleman and a guy who just has stories that are just almost beyond belief. The well is so deep in Norbert Putnam and I uh, get to finish off tonight with a, a real character, an entertainer, a phenomenal musician, somebody who's out there um, doing what he needs to do uh, in order to inspire himself so he can give off that light to the world and we're all better off for it. Dave Schools, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hello, Jake. How are you? I'm good, brother. Can you just talk about how you, when you first connected with Todd Nance as, as the drummer for Widespread? Well, sure. <laughs> of course. Um, you know, we, uh, it was Mike Hauser and John Bell and myself, and we all lived in this house with a couple, maybe three cats in Athens, Georgia, and we had a batch of drummers that we could call upon to do gigs. Um, one was a guy named Joel Morris that was a, a great drummer. Mm. And he he played on our first uh, recording, the Space Wrangler and Sleepy Monkey 7-inch record we made. Um, and we had another guy named Cliff that was your basic, uh, had the Neil Pert set up. Sure. But uh, didn't know how to play the clave beat. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, that one was, you know, wasn't working. Anyway, we had a big gig, probably the biggest gig we'd ever had offered to us. It was a big benefit at the Mad Hatter Ballroom with some other local bands, one of which was called the Strawberry Flats, which uh, our longtime mentor and producer, John Keane, was the guitar player for. So it was a big deal. Wow. And uh, none of our drummers could make it. We had like 10 days, you know. We we called people, Joel, you know, he, he had some other professional gig much more professional than us. <laughs> and we understood it, and we didn't want to call the Neil Peart guy. Uh, and um, Mikey Hauser, suddenly this light bulb goes off, and he's like, Toad. And we said, what? He goes, Toad. Oh. The guy I played with back in high school in, near Chattanooga, where I grew up, in Harrison, Tennessee. Whoa. <clears throat> so Mikey called the number he had, and he got Todd Nance's mom. And she's like, oh, he's uh, selling insurance in Atlanta. <laughs> Give him a call. And we're like, Atlanta, that's a lot closer than Chattanooga. Right. So we called, and uh, he's like, I'll be there. What, you know, let's rehearse. Let's see how it goes. And so uh, a day or two later, this shitty uh, white Maverick car pulls up to 320 King Avenue, and this normal-looking guy starts loading drums out, and the drums have carpet taped to the insides of the heads. Because <laughs> mm. they're like, why is there carpet taped to the inside <laughs> of your drum heads, Todd? And he's like, well, I've been playing with this country act, and 
They say I'm just too damn loud. <laughs> it's getting a little muffled sound <laughs> there. Yeah, I dig. Yeah. <laughs> Peel that carpet off and let's get down to brass tacks. And, you know, that's maybe the time when I learned that the hang is way more important than, you know, the perfectionism of the performance. For rock and roll, at least, and at least for us at right. that day and age, where all we wanted to do was not have to get a corporate job in Reagan's America. Exactly. So... So we we did Todd. He's like, uh, was it wasn't it uh, W. Bush's America? No, this was nineteen eighty six. Eighty six. So Toad came on the scene in eighty six. Eighty six. The gig was like February something of you know it's out there on the yeah. internet. I can't remember. Right. Uh, we had an anniversary and then it just became part of the past. But I remember it specifically because we had too much fun and, and it wasn't advisable for him to drive back to Atlanta. So he's like, I'll just crash on the couch. And then he's like, I'm allergic to cats, but I don't feel <laughs> terrible. And he said he woke up the next morning, not sneezing, not stuffed up, but with two of the three cats sleeping on him. Oh, that is <laughs> so classic, dude. That is and, uh, so great. That was it. That was it. That's wow. how we met. And, you know, we... We learned a lot together. Most importantly, we learned how to, to, to sound like widespread panic together. Well, that's what I wanted you to specifically talk about was like the, the ability. I remember Ron Carter said that, uh, you know, rhythm sections are not in and of themselves responsible for uh, creating vocabulary on the bandstand, but they can, they can set the table and they can set that blanket. And I just wonder, like, you know, you can get as deep in the weeds as you want, but ultimately, like, how did you guys cultivate that sound? And when did you far, when did you first sort of begin to hear the evolution of that sound? Well, you know, the maestro was right. Um, but in our world, we did have a vocabulary. We, we had uh, to listen to each other because we weren't trained musicians. You know, we had to we had to really pay close attention. Um, and the reward for paying close attention was getting to let go sometimes and just let the car steer itself, you know. Um, so that's how I mean that we just developed our own sound. We, we weren't trying to sound. We didn't disappear into, you know, some uh, cooking pot cauldron of a rehearsal space and, and <laughs> right, with the right. sound. We, we had a lot of fun playing together and we played parties and we played backyards and we started playing little venues and things and we learned how to be a band um, and a unit. And, uh, you know, it was just, there was so much DIY for us. You know, everything was DIY. Can you give an example? No Can you give an example? <clears throat> sure. Um, lighting. Right. Like, uh, you know, we do these gigs. We're lucky if there was enough power, you know, for our amps. Absolutely. But uh, John Bell, you know, was like, hey, you know, we need some lighting. And so he uh, he goes to, like, the Home Depot, and he gets these lights called garden spots. They're colored big floodlights. Sure. And then he's like, well, we can't just have these laying around on the ground. So he goes back to Fraternity Row and looks in trash cans and finds a bunch of uh, institutional size, like soup cans and ravioli cans, <laughs> and uh, cleans them up. He takes the label off. Oh, this is insane, dude. Cuts the bottom out and rigs up the system oh. where we got a couple of, like, par cans made out of soup cans and garden spots. 
and uh, a power strip, you know, to at least illuminate ourselves or maybe the trees behind us. We did that a time or two. <laughs> like, these trees look way better than we do. Let's light those guys up. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you, I mean, like, is it fair to say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated now with, with today's current ecosystem and how um, I, I want, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the bread, you know, maybe not right away, but by the, once you became an established man, you guys make good bread for the gigs themselves. The reason I ask now is, you know, when I'm going out with Circles or Shred or Michaela, whoever it is, like, you know, they can make money on the merch table, but there's no money in the gigs any right now, you know? And I just wonder if, like, you you guys did make good bread playing live. Um, well, you know, we did because, I mean, I don't, I don't know what good is. It's sort of a stepping stone kind of game. I mean, I remember the night we took our earnings and we fed ourselves like kings at Waffle House, you know, <laughs> at three in the morning. And then it's like, oh, well, we can keep the power on at the band house, you know, and then it becomes a thing like, gosh, I sure, you know, I'm living out of the band house now and I sure would like to be able to, you know, pay my share of the long distance bill. Remember those things? Long distance bills. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, That's funny. I, forgot. I just remember that for the first time since, since it went away. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, but it was sort of bit by bit. It was not like, you know, and we were always, it seems like for years we were always on the edge. Um, you know, we were a very college oriented band. Um, you know, oddly in the university of Virginia and some of the schools in the mountains of Virginia, like, uh, uh, Randolph Macon and Washington and Lee, certainly at the university of Georgia, um, fraternities and sororities would put on actual parties where they wanted bands that played original music. Dude, that is the hippest thing I've ever in the Hills of Virginia. Yeah. Oh, there's a, a Washington Lee, there. man. They wanted original tunes, man. Yes, they had a place called Zolman's Pavilion that was off campus and out in the country and accessible. You know, bands with tour buses could pull up there and play. And and it wasn't like some basement of a fraternity house. Sure, we did plenty of those to make ends meet. Sure. But some of these type gigs were like, this was big exposure. You know, this was the beginning of how bands like Dave Matthews um, and John Mayer, you know, stepped on the rungs to the success they've had is... Uh, these colleges and they talk and they communicate and there was no internet yet. I mean, if there were, it was probably not the hipster kids using it, you know? Absolutely not. I mean, but that, that benefited us greatly. And the coolest thing about it as an Athenian was that sometimes these fraternities brought great bands. So you could go see them. They put them in the yard. You just walk down the sidewalk and, you know, there's the glands playing. Right, right. No, it, it just gave me a flash about George Porter doing the same thing 25 years earlier at fraternities and sororities in down in New Orleans. I mean, were you, <clears throat> um, w when you talk about the, the, the beginning rungs, the stepping stones for the, the mayors and the Dave Matthews, you, you're telling me that like there was enough exposure there to them how did they parlay that then to, I mean, obviously it's been, a, it's been the forever journey, but those places, what you're saying now is they're not so accessible anymore. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, I really don't. I'm sure that it's still a hot bit of um, creativity and it's a great place to learn how to be a band um, and people to get the word out. But, you know, the grapevine, it, it works through the internet in real time now. Um, and also, 
at that point, hmm. college radio was a big thing. Do you remember the college music journal, CMJ? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah, it was, go ahead. Yeah, and, the, you know, so there was a, a whole magazine, um, and there was even a conference, you know, up in New York, and lots of bands would go play. I mean, it was all about college music, and we happened to go to the town where the biggest band from that town pretty much helped lasso all these little college radio stations into one big thing and that would be rem you know they wow. made it a point to visit every single little geeky dj you know in a tiny little 150 watt university or college radio station and make friends with that guy you know that's what it took that's what it always took and i, I still to this day i tell people that it takes that you have to make friends you know you have to make friends with the one person that came and smiled and stuck around to say hi to you after the show, because they might just bring 10 friends with them. It's the a, you're nailing this, through. dude. The, the, the cumulative results of, uh, and of, of just spirit and, and the karmic repercussions of like one, the butterfly effect of things going out. It's really absolutely profound statement to make. I mean, you, uh, I, I want to go back to this, just this one thing about the, you know, just these, ba like, did you, a were you able to, I mean, obviously you didn't have Parrish and Ramrod, but the other thing that seems to be taking away money from the bands just on live gigs now is that uh, security. What, what did, why, did, was there a, did you, were you able to bring in the, the fo football teams from the universities or was that, or <laughs> that, that, that used to be the dead thing, you know, in, in, uh, like in, in, in some of the state schools in California, there were some bad vibes cause there'd be in like Chico and stuff, but sure. there wasn't, it sure. wasn't police, you know, <laughs> it wasn't fucking lockdowns. No, I mean, I've seen my share of it. By the time we were playing like basketball gyms yeah. and field houses and uh, on campuses around the country, it was everything from the football team to <laughs> people people who were on just like the student union music this is so badass dude. Oh wearing God. yellow polo shirts that say security on them. <laughs> and they're like scared to death of, of our fans i mean our fans are peaceful you know just um, just rowdy and fired up yeah yeah i mean you know security can it's such an issue and people are you know i don't know if they're any more nuts these days than they are in those days but you know, it's it's always an issue. Um, but I, the one I always remember was a pro security company. I think they were in Virginia, and they worked shows in Richmond and Charlottesville and um, probably some of those other larger college campuses. And they were called Velvet Hammer Security. And I their love logo that, <laughs> said, You know, polite but firm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because every now and then someone messes hey, up. Hey, come on. You know, of course. You no, know, it's rock and roll. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Come on. That that's just so so. Um, you know, when one thing I wanted to touch on with you also was, um, like, did had you played with? Have you ever played with Schofield before? I've never played with Schofield. Have you crossed? I met him. Yeah, no, I was going to curious about that because there's this great story about. Uh, do you know? Have you heard the story about? Uh, the first time that Warren Haynes showed up and asked to sit in with Skull? Uh, probably. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I did play with Governor Buell for two years. So. Absolutely. No, what I'm saying is that that this was in the early 80s and, and Warren showed up 
at Schofield's gig. I think Steve Grossman was on the gig. It was a jazz gig. And Warren's like, you know, can I sit in? And Sco's like, no, hell you can't sit in, dude. <laughs> and then he, then as, as Warren sat there during the night, he's like, oh, my God, that's the cat from the Allman Brothers, you know? And then pretty soon after that, it was just like, that. that my question was, was uh, you know, had you played with Warren prior to Government Mule? Yes, because, uh, gosh, we, we had a common friend, a gentleman named Chuck Lavelle, who is probably one of the few... A dear man, yeah, a dear friend. I, I interviewed Chuck. He's badass. He's wonderful. I mean, you could he could play two notes. You could tell it's Chuck Lavelle, mm-hmm. just like Adam McDougal. He plays two notes. That's Adam freaking McDougal. So Chuck was a he was a fan of the band, and he also I believe he produced that Warren Haynes solo record mm-hmm. from like 1991. It had the song "Fire in the Kitchen" on it. I can't remember what the name of the record was, but. Chuck had uh, learned to like us through the Capricorn Records connection. And uh, somehow we did a gig with Warren's solo band at, uh, I can't remember the name of the place, but it was uh, a UVA gig, University of Virginia. Um, It wasn't on campus, and I cannot remember the name, but I think we played with Hot Tuna or maybe the band. Really? Yeah, it was Warren us and then the band i think and warren might have set in with us but it wasn't you know we started doing a lot together we were doing a lot of gigs on that circuit with hot tuna um the same crew would show up warren was always there and then of course you know when when formed government mule it was it was on you know they'd play with us and there'd be sit-ins of of all kinds you know woody would come and sit in with us and play mandolin and oh. that thing in his hands looked like a plastic toy guitar. Oh, my God. <laughs> but he could play the play great, you know. So just lucky to have been exposed to these people. Warren, you know, is he is a man of many talents. And, you know, you think I tell great stories. He's got them. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, what was it like when – were you close to the cat who passed in Government Mule? We were total – Friends. Can we you talk? Friends. I mean, I, I really want this to be like a recognition. Like, I feel very deeply about the spirits that have passed. They're still here in some ways, Toad. But I, I, you know, to me, it's like you filled in for. It wasn't a, like a two week stint. It was like a couple years. Yeah, it was a couple of years, and and you know, Panic and Mule did a shitload of gigs together, and Alan and I got along so well, almost too too good. Um, to where, you know, <laughs> we had a lot of fun. Let me put it that way. And, uh, you know, Woody uh, just passed sitting in a chair in a hotel room at the end of a long tour, just worn himself out with the lifestyle, you know. And and I was in L.A. at my dad's house, and I got a phone call from Warren Haynes on a cell phone that I'd had maybe three months. <laughs> and... Uh, He's like, we're doing this benefit for Alan's widow and his daughter in New York. I was wondering if, you know, you'd play the bass in the mule section. Wow. And I was like, yes, of course. And then I thought about what that entailed, which put the fear of God in me, because Alan Woody was, to put it indelicately, a motherfucker on the bass. Um, and it's not about what he played, it's how he played it about the intent right. as bruce hampton would say and woody's intent was to hold a three-piece together and be the locomotive too all at the same time 
pull that thing along. So it was scary as hell. A lot of great musicians on that stage at the Roseland that night. Um, and that is so sick. Went, was it the Roseland Ballroom? Yeah. I'm loving that. Yeah. Dude, you totally got every... Oh, man, you lucky, you lucky bastard. Dude, that's great. That's beautiful. Yeah, Crows played. Um, Phil Lesh and Friends played. Oh. I remember Artemis Pyle was there telling stories about how his airplane was almost crashing. I'm like, Jesus, dude, stop flying. <laughs> um, and it went really well. You know, I was petrified. Who else was there? Uh, um, oh, Leslie West was there. Oh, <laughs> that's so classic. You know, and Robert Kearns and Audley Freed uh, did like a mountain set with him. Wow. And it was just, it was just sick. Corky Lang wasn't there? No, I think Matt Apps might have been drunk. Yeah, I dig, one. man. No, this is, I'm so glad, okay, so you've been talking about being petrified, fearful, like, I mean, you know, you got to stay on the edge so you'll be prepared and however you prepare yourself for this stuff, but, you know, creatively, like, I'm sitting here, it's been 110 in Tucson every day, I've had a few opportunities to get out, but <laughs> the world's on fire, there's an inferno, you know, and, and um, I oftentimes just have to work through creative slumps. And I just wanted you to talk about your own ethos. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to relate to the bass. Obviously, you, you play very naturally. You play what's coming through you. But, like, when you get stymied, can you talk about a time in your career when you were scuffling and putting how you learned to get out of your own way and let the muse come through you? Well, I can get to that. If you don't let me get too far sidetracked, I just want to go back to yeah. talking about Alan Woody. Yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah. sort of answers this question. Um, Good. So, I kind of was in sort of a slump. Um, you were, like you described, I mean, it wasn't necessarily creative, but it was like, what am I doing? Am I happy? Uh, and I got tangled up in some drugs, and then I got clean, and then three months later, that phone call came. And um, after that gig at the Roseland with Mule, we talked about it, Warren and I, and uh, he's like, that was that was pretty cool. Did you have fun? And I'm like, I was scared shitless, but yeah, I had fun. Uh, and he's like, well, you want to like do it again at Christmas jam, maybe play a few more songs and in Asheville. And I'm like, of course I'd love to. And after that went well, then the phone calls became something that happened in earnest. You know, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's call Chuck Lavelle and see if he'll do it. Right. Right. Play. And that's when government mule, legitimately became a four-piece. I mean, Johnny Neal was a big part up until then and played on the record previous. But here's how it got me out of my slump. It was so fucking challenging. And at the same time as it was musically challenging, it was fresh for me. You know, it was like playing with Matt fucking Apps and Chuck Lavelle and Warren Haynes. So ridiculous. We're having, like, fun playing any cover we want. Alice Cooper. Let's learn it and play it. You know, anything we want. And uh, all along the way, at every show, I was met by so many people who loved Alan and were thanking me for what I was doing. You know, they, they didn't look at me as like some substitute. They looked at me as someone who was helping perpetrate his legacy. Absolutely. And, and that was so fulfilling that... I think I really took another step forward as, as a, a bassist and a musician and a listener 
um, because of being sort of thrown into that situation. And it all came to a head at the end of a tour one night in Nashville, and everyone was all abuzz. And they're like, I'm like, what's, what's everything? He's like, uh, Alan's dad, Doug Woody, is coming to the show tonight. And he's been, you know, obviously his son died. Mm-hmm. So, and he comes, and uh, we play the show, and I was just thinking about it the whole time and trying to send love vibes for my friend and his son that, uh, I, you know, I don't know if I'm doing this right, but I'm doing it. And Doug came up to me that night and he said, you know, Dave Schools, I, I didn't want to like you at first. But then I heard you play and what you were doing was so filled with the spirit of Alan that I love you. And we were great friends. You know, he, he would come to panic shows. He would, he would find someone to drive him, you know, to like Knoxville to come see a panic show. Oh, that's great. That's and so and great. that to answer the question about slumps yeah. and so forth yeah. is really one of the best examples I can think because it was coming at me from so many different directions. Um, you know, and I learned, I learned something very specific about coming into a role like that. And I've helped, you know, Jimmy Herring and I have talked about it and I was ready to talk to John Lee Shannon about it, but he didn't need it. You know, but that there's something, there are kind of three things you have to do when you step into shoes that big. Um, and one is you have to honor some of the original parts. you got to honor them by literally recreating them. There's a song called Thorazine Shuffle um, in the government mule catalog. Mm-hmm. There ain't no room to fuck around with that. Either play it like Woody intended it or tell the band you don't want to play it at all. So there's that way. Mm-hmm. And then there's the ones where there's, you know, maybe because of the nature of the song, there is a lot more room to inject your own personality. Um, But you still got to cleave onto like the intent, you know, is this like badass? Was he barging through the song or was he playing nimble, delicate guy? You know, fascinating. Yes. What's the third thing? The third thing is, is the best one. It's like creating new material with that Mm, band. Yeah. Yeah. um, Just, do what you do naturally it and usually that's for people like me at least that's that's what we do the best you know i mean i've been lucky enough to be in a band like widespread panic for 40 years almost where i can take a simple song like our cover of jj kale's song traveling light sure it's got like four chords you know and and we 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 train, we, we locomotive the song, you know, the way he plays it, it is light and breezy. And we play it like, you know, we're, we're charging down a mine shaft at full speed. Coal mines, but yeah, absolutely. What I'm lucky about is I can play it differently every night. If I'm angry, I can bash my way through it. And then it might get Todd or Dwayne or the drummer at that show bashing along with me. Or we can play it light and easy. You know, that's a freedom that is rare. Um, and it's one to not be bandied about, taken lightly. A couple questions uh, related to that incredible story about you merging with with Mule and then honoring Woody. I, I remember Mel, Melvin Seals told me in our interview, he said, um, <clears throat> he said, you know, he had knew, he knew Merle before he got in with the Garcia band, but when he got... And with the band, he went to a rehearsal, didn't even know who Jerry was. It was like, wow, this guy can play some guitar. So once he found out and they got in the band, 
he, he wanted to listen to tapes of the Garcia band. And Jerry and John Conn were like, no, do not listen to the previous player because you'll do exactly what he does. And so were there some songs that the Cats would give you because they had to be played in that vein? Or was everything kind of feel-based? More, uh, Warren has an incredible memory. And I remember he wanted to do some song, and I really wasn't ready for it, but I stumbled through it, and it was the last show of a tour. And then we reconvened um, maybe six or eight weeks later to do another little run. And the first thing when we were talking about what to play that night, he goes, oh, oh yeah, and I remember that... Uh, you played a, a C sharp minor where there was supposed to be an E natural. Whoa, dude, that memory—that's that a different song. level memory. Dude. <laughs> okay, you know, but really, it was. It Whoa, was, dude. My thing was, we just had fun, you know, and right. it was like kind of gravy because there were a lot of people who would have put money on Mule being toast without Woody, um, but to bring in Chuck Lavelle and someone like me, uh, it isn't recreation. It's new creation. You know, it was, they literally called it the new school of government mule, which was a, a play on my name, but also um, sort of like this is a new way of thinking because we were like your average, you know, um, I called them muscle rock. You know? Sure, sure, <laughs> sure. Rifle rock, grudge rock, uh, a three-piece band. Total grudge rock. By, yeah, yeah. yeah. Three-piece band influenced by bands like Mountain. Um, so and, sad. You know. Uh, no, let me. So, so, um, like, well, continue. I mean, you basically, when they threw the song, like when you first got the songbook thrown at you, that was daunting. That would put you in fear. Right, but we built up, you know. Right. The first gig was four songs um, and a cover. The second gig was like eight songs and a cover. And all along the way, we had a couple of really good rehearsals. I did as much homework as I could. Um, some things I really needed Matt Apps as a drummer to give me a lot more cues. You know, he was really, he was really great about paying extra attention to me. And if it felt like I wasn't locked, he'd make me lock. Wow. You know, that's, that's the kind awesome. of drummer he is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Chuck, having Chuck on the other side of me and, and having known him, you know, there's always been a good bit of Southern sarcasm between two southern gentlemen as it were oh you are such a southern gentleman wait a minute hold on i missed did i miss something before i lavelle and you cross paths when oh we crossed paths in like 1990 or 91 wow because of capricorn he liked the song that we had on our first capricorn beautiful yeah and he was interested because t lavitz was in our band from the dixie dregs the keyboard player he was in our band for a year um so Here's what Chuck taught me, and I love this. Um, this is great. This is, this is freaking this great. Is, this is a classic <laughs> example of how to deal with anyone in any situation. So Chuck had brought that classic Eddie Harris song compared to what? Les McCann, yeah, absolutely. You know, and we we tore it up. You know, we did it like the wow. uh, Swiss Time version. Yeah, absolutely. You know, live version. Mm-hmm. So, because he could just, you know, he could play. He could get off on that. We learned the intro perfectly, or so I thought. <laughs> so, we played it a time or two, and that sound check the next day, we're setting up, and, and he sits down, and he goes, uh, hey, you know, Dave, uh, you know, on this uh, one section of the intro to compare it to what, um, and you're playing... Uh, what are you playing there? F F sharp minor, 
like, a, yeah, I think it's this. And he goes, well, you know what? I wish you would play this. And he looked at me, and the way he said, I wish, was just like, I was like, he wishes my command. <laughs> Dude, the boat, I mean, this is unreal, man. That is high-level spirituality communication in the real time. That's insane. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it, he taught me the right thing to do or to play without me. I had been doing the wrong that's, thing. You, you know, and that's a big thing. You also have to be in a good headspace. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, like, I mean, to me, like, he has a Zen quality to him. He's so connected to nature. Um, obviously, he has all that history with Dwayne and Greg and the, and the, how bad at that was the cool thing. And you know, the overlap. He's been a director for the Rolling Stones since 1982. <laughs> Absolutely no, but I want I want to say what's interesting is that uh, when Dwayne died, uh, he similar to, to Woody. I mean, different circumstances, but he joined the Almonds, and he said it was the bravest thing for that band. They were they had a huge tour lined up, and they and they had him go on the road with them. And it was a bold thing. I mean, that's but you carried on. Government Mule did the same thing without Woody, and like I think that's that right. that I think that that. I mean, to have that kind of cushion. Um, the uh, how many songs? How quickly? Well, you already said, how, but I mean, how many new tunes came about almost immediately once you and Lavelle started to cook the groove with Mule? Well, it wasn't new tunes. It was like new, new branches on old songs. Wow, giving it yeah, maybe, opening up and. Uh, you know, because they had a pretty extensive catalog already. Um, and there was a lot of songs on those two uh, Deepest End or Deep End records. Right. Are you aware of those records? Not, not, not by ear. Well, those are, it's volume one and volume two. And, you know, they're CDs, so it's probably 12 songs on each one. Uh, basically, Warren called around and asked all of Woody's favorite bass players to play a song on this record. And Chris Squire from Yes. Wow. And John Entwistle, my hero. <laughs> so um, sick, dude. Um, Mike Gordon. I even got to play one. Um, wow. Les Claypool, Alfonso Johnson, Jack Cassidy, Phil, you know, just Warren loved bass players. And if he didn't like the way they played, he called them bass holders. <laughs> I dig. He's a so, man, he's a man of many talents, though. I mean, he, what's what's another talent that people don't know about Warren Haynes? Um, well, he got to start in Nashville as a background vocalist in the sessions. Oh my God, dude! Are you kidding me? He played in David Allen Coe's band too. Oh dear, <laughs> uh, I don't think I think you don't. We don't need to go any farther, dude. That is the most insane thing I've ever heard. No, but I'll I'll get back to what I, you know. I was. So there was three Mule albums. Sure. And then there were these two bass player records. You know, so there's plenty of material there. And we were just knocking down gigs and trying to get the word out that no one was throwing down, uh, you know, any, no one was throwing the towel in in any way. It's fair to say, though, maybe you can give an example of how you impacted, got those branches elongated on a particular tune, like your ears perked up and was like, I'm going to drive this into a new stratosphere over here, and, and the song grew because of it. Well, you know, songs like Mule opened up. They always opened up, but they were generally filled with, you know, snippets of other songs. Like we would sometimes we'd go into What Is Hip, that Tower oh, Power right. song. Yeah. Because that was another one that was on the bass player record, because Rocco 
adapted version of what is hip. Rest of God, God bless that cat, man. Rest in peace, Rocco, man. The king, king of the ghost notes. Woo. Dude, what a dude. Him and Garibaldi. Garibaldi's the academic. Rocco has no idea what's coming out of him, and it just worked like you know, hot hot knife through butter. That's uh, well, that's music, you know. Sometimes it's academic, and sometimes it's all feel. And, you know, if you're lucky, you get a little bit of both and you learn something. Some people unlearn something. Some people learn something. Un- unlearning. You know. How important is it to unlearn certain bad habits? I mean, obviously, well, it's, it's essential. But for you, I mean, you, 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 uh, you, you walk the walk on that, too? Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm hamptomatized, as they say. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Dude, please. Yo, he's here, man. The colonel's here. You got to play from the primordial gut, man. I'm an acolyte of uh, his methodology, which is... God bless. Um, a musician can't really play music with others until he can get his ego out of the way. And, you know, I, you know, I was troubled by my ego. I still am. I think it's natural for all of us. Everybody, because the yeah. ego, it's, it's, it's armor. It's there to protect us when we're young. And sometimes if we don't learn to shed that ego, that armor, um, then we carry it into adulthood. It gets us into trouble. But, uh, you know, Bruce was fond of saying uh, there's nothing worse than a serious musician. You know, there's nothing. Don't take yourself so seriously. Take the music seriously. Take what you do seriously. You know, don't take yourself that like, seriously. Exactly. I don't want to. I don't want to hear you play scales that you know. You know I want to hear you play the last time you got your heart broken. I want to hear you play the joy of your mother holding you. That's you know the lesson that Bruce left for us who were willing to listen to it. And I think if you look at the some the pedigree of some of the players that have come through his ranks, I mean, O'Teal's pretty much killing it. Um, Kevin Scott is now playing with Governor Mule and killing it unlike anyone has since Woody, even myself, because Kevin was born for that gig. Wow. He was also born to play with John McLaughlin. He's a badass from Dothan, Alabama, so there. Um, Wayne Trucks came through, you know, and Bruce affected so many generations of musicians. Uh, Dwayne Allman said he was his favorite guitar player. I don't even know what that means. I, get it. I fucking get it, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Talking to Dave Schools here on the Jake Feinberg Show. D- d- have you had a chance to hang? Uh, I- I've been with Kenny Gradney at all? No. <laughs> dude, I, could be, I mean, dude, seriously, because I cannot stop listening. I mean, it sounds trite, but I actually saw Tony Leone and Scott Sherrard with Little Feet, covered the Waiting for Columbus album, and now there's one side of it that I can't stop listening to because of the interplay between Richie Hayward and, and Gradney. And I'm like, thinking about this interview, I'm like, I gotta ask schools about Gradney. Dude. Are you talking about the Dixie Chicken Trike Face side, or are you talking about the Mercenary Territory? Mercenary side? Territory, dude. Okay. I can't well, you know, stop, man. I can't stop. You're talking about one of my top. The floor is yours, man. It, well, it's you know, it's live at Leeds by the Who, and then it's Almond Brothers, Fillmore East, and then it's Wait for Columbus. Whoa. I was exposed to that. I don't know why they got so much radio airplay in Richmond, Virginia, in the late seventies, but I went out and I bought that fucking record, and it blew my socks away. Blew just, my socks, knocked know, my socks off, dude. 
Yeah, I'm mixing metaphors. That's how confused I was by the music. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because it's very natural. I mean, like they, I mean, even Tackett, Fred Tackett told me that Lowell would try to get Richie to play a part and he could never do it anyway. He could only do it his way. Him and Gradney were sometimes, you know, they'd have, th- have fist fights, but then they were like, guys, listen to the crowd. They're going nuts. It's okay. And yet it just sounds so insanely, it just sounds so. It sounds like music. That to me is music. It's it is. It's language. Right. Music is language um, without words, and therefore there's not really a Tower of Babel kind of thing needed, unless egos in the way or academic versus intent um, and feel get in the way. Uh, I know that Tony says playing with Kenny is like the greatest thing, and Tony has played with some greats, and I I love playing with Tony Leone. Um, you know, and when I that needs to, to happen more, you know, <laughs> that's a great rhythm section there. I well, I enjoy it, and I'm trying to find ways to make it happen always. Wow. Um, I remember asking Weir uh, the first time I ever met him, I was looking for something to talk about because he didn't know who the hell I was. <laughs> my, my modulus person took me to a birthday party at his house on Madison. This is, I, I just put me right there, man. I want to see that interaction right there. And I was just like, uh, you know. Uh, and he's friendly as can be, hosting this party in the afternoon, so it wasn't too crazy. I was just looking for something to talk to this guy about, other than his own career, or how much I actually liked his band. And I, right. I, I'd been to see a Bobby in the Midnight show um, maybe eight years earlier, maybe maybe seven, uh, and Kenny was was the bassist, and Billy Cobham was the drummer. <laughs> dude, uh, w- w- this is good. you've just opened up a major can of worms, dude. <laughs> the, the, Bobby Cochran, Bob, oh, that is the sick. I cannot believe you saw the Midnight's did with Gradney. That is sick. Yeah. It was amazing. So what did you say to him? What did you? So what did you say? What did you start talking? I just to him? said, well, I just said, you know, uh, Little Feet's one of my favorite bands, and what was it like playing with Kenny? <laughs> it's classic weird. <laughs> and you may have heard him say that. I've heard him say this before when asked similar questions about other musicians. Uh, he's like, playing with Kenny's more fun than a frog in a glass of milk. <laughs> Classic Weir. I don't even know what it means. Did Weir, like, well, no, I mean, he's such a huckleberry, dude. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, he loved the chaos of um, Gradney and Cobham. That was, you know, because it was Al Johnson before that. Where, what, you saw him in 84? Because I think that was the last time they went out was 84. It had no, it, well, I guess it could have been 84, 85. I was definitely still in college at UGA. So it was 84 or 85. It was no, because 85, Kingfish had moved in. 84, this is unbelievable. Where did you, what was the venue? The venue was a place in Atlanta called the Harvest Moon. Or either the Moon Shadow. There were two. That's what, I, I've, I've looked at that, that was, it was in, it was like August, September. Yeah, I went with uh, people I went to college with and, and, uh, I remember, like, really the only Grateful Dead thing they did, other than I think they might have opened with New Minglewood Blues, and they introduced the band as Little Bobby Hitler and the House Pets from Hell. Oh, my God. Dude, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's the greatest story I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> but the only thing they did was they played uh, that uh, part of that Kingfish song, the instrumental jam called Supplication. That's right. And they did it out of Billy Cobham's drum break, or either into it. Right. Or, but, you know, there was... Uh, it, there's a good bit of, like, AOR cheese, I guess. You know, what's that song, Too Many Losers? Oh, no, no, at that point, the material that they made that they were promoting on that new album was not very... I was never inspired by that. 
it was the earlier stuff with Brent and uh, and Al Johnson when they when they made that album in '81. But the fact that you saw them live, I mean, that is just raw Bob Weir. I mean, he says you're lucky if he even remembers some of this stuff. Um, Billy Kreutzman's playing tonight in Baltimore with Reed Mathis, Aaron Magner, a few other cats too, badass cats. Um, I just wonder, Daniel like, Donato. Daniel Donato, thank you. Daniel Donato, legend, uh, monster, younger cat. Um, and there's, a, you know, and, and I just wonder about, um, you know, when it's all said and done, you know, what is the legacy? This is Dave Schools, because I'm, what I'm saying is that what's amazing is that even my, my daughter's generation, like, those cats, they got to be hip and they're going to have to do research. And they're going to have to listen to shows like mine to know that Jerry Garcia was the original guitar player in the Grateful Dead. <laughs> yeah, I get it, man. Yeah, man. I just so so. I mean, with Billy, like, like he 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 didn't finish the tour. Um, I just wonder what you, how you can encapsulate it. You saw them during my favorite time. You got off on it. You were there. You were hip to it. You obviously know the guys personally. Played with them, and I just wonder. You break it all down, like. We got to keep, yeah, the lineage, yeah. Legacy of not just the Grateful Dead. I mean, that's definitely the standard bearer. Absolutely. What it does is it takes me back to a time when I was seeing them in that period of the the mid-early 80s. Oh, the best. Where I, as a kid growing up in Richmond, Virginia, you know, we had two radio stations. One played commercial crap, and the other one gave the DJs a little more leeway. That's where I heard Devo and Steely Dan and Little Feet and, yes, The Grateful Dead. Um, but it struck me that all the bands that I was exposed to were the acid rock bands. I liked the classic rock bands. I remember we got cable, and I finally saw the movie Woodstock. Right. You know, and I was like, God, I was born too late. I missed all this stuff. But I, <laughs> at The Grateful Dead shows, I was like, these guys are still doing it. And believe me, I was remarking the other day to someone how my first Grateful Dead show I walk up to the goddamn box office an hour before doors opened and bought a ticket for six fifty. The scope, right? No, that was eighty two. This was the Hampton Coliseum in nineteen seventy nine. And um, uh, well, we're going to go back. I did not know you had a show before the scope. Oh yeah, yeah. We, it was either eighty or eighty one because they didn't play there seventy. Anyway, this is so sick. You went up to the box office. It was so under the radar. It was so. It yeah, was. Well, it was so under the radar, but the point I'm making is they were the only ones carrying the flag still. And and what does that flag represent? I want to know what that, that flag is. That, well, that flag to me at the time just represented the music that I was and something I was looking for. And as I got deeper into the scene, it began to represent a lot of the, I guess, uh, cultural clothing of the era. Uh, and some people to this day, like Candace Brightman, when she came out and did Lights for Widespread Panic, she espoused so many hippie ideals and lived them. Right. And it was fulfilling to see someone because, you know, by, by that time, there was a lot of cynicism. You know, you can even my favorite Hunter Thompson quote about being able to see where the, the wave broke, <laughs> where the wave of idealism and then rolled back. Um, I mean, it, it really about, already by 80, 81, it was already sunk in. I, I always think that I always feel like that was the last period of optimism because maybe there could have been, 
even though we weren't nearly as politically divided, uh, it, we just, to me, it was like, I just know that Kimok told me that in by 79, if you had a reggae or Bob Marley sticker on your car, you were getting pulled over. Like it oh, was getting yeah. the bad vibes, man. Like vibe, bad vibes. Oh, police fascism. Um, yeah. I mean, it's always been there in certain places. It's like, why are the Grateful Dead playing in certain <laughs> places in the Deep South? It's like, are they throwing their fans to the wolves? <laughs> right. It's, are they Johnny Appleseed with the good vibes? I don't know. I mean, y- you could ask some people that are probably still in jail. They do one thing, right. and I'll tell you another. I was really happy to get to see the Grateful Dead in a room the size of the Fox Theater in Atlanta. That was pretty fucking amazing. Um, and it was but, an, that was an amazing eighty-five. Yes, it was. A fall Dude, that was it, man. That was the show. You saw the one, and you you saw such a burning. Anyway, just to be clear, you because you alluded to Woodstock. This is very interesting. You you got cable, saw Edgar Winter. You know, Ma, you know, Swami Satchidananda. All the cats were there. You saw that. You said, "I missed the boat." And then you said the dead were carrying that flag. And I'm just I'm trying to get that essence of the flag because. That's what the younger cats are going to have to. It's soul to me. It's spirit and soul. I mean, it's got people well, got to hang on to that. Is. And it's intent, you know. To, intent. To use Bruce Hampton again. It's intent, Bruce. You know, he said his thing about my band was he literally delivered a box of CDs to us at a gig because uh, we had an independent deal on Landslide Records. And I remember we were asking Mike. This was like 1989, I think. Right. We we're like. Are we going to get to have CDs? <laughs> this is how long ago it was. They're like, can we have CDs, please? Oh, Fuck this vinyl, you know? Yeah, right. Fuck vinyl. Because like, you, guys, you guys aren't big enough yet. <laughs> you guys aren't big enough. Oh, my yet. God. But then uh, we're playing some gig at Agnes Scott College in Atlanta. It's a women's college in Decatur, I think. And here comes this homeless-looking dude with mustard stains on his shirt and a square head with a box of CDs. <laughs> and uh, that's how we met Colonel Bruce Hampton. But when he tells oh that my story, God, dude. he says, I was delivering them the CDs and uh, I came in and here's a band sound checking in front of no one with the intent of playing in front of 45,000 people. And that's... What a guru, that was, man. That's the sickest line I've ever heard in my life. That's, that's that is so I guru, mean. man. But that's the thing. Intention, I mean, intention. There's a, intent. There's a lot of yeah. people out there. And here's the bad news. Here's the bad news. Hey, artists, just because you can render art, it doesn't mean you're owed a living. Hmm. Let me repeat that. Just because you have chosen to make art does not mean you are owed a living. And I'm sorry, <laughs> even if I die poor and am buried in a potter's field, I believe that, you know, you have to, there's a lot of sacrifice and there's a lot of hard work and there's a lot of good times that come along with it. It's about the hang. And if you can do it and make worthwhile art that resonates with people, then maybe you can make a living. Let me ask you, you you feel that you feel that people are feeling there's an entitlement thing or people are mentally weaker today? No, there's an entitlement thing, and I think that social media has a lot to do with it. Okay, so can you can you flesh that out for a minute? Just flesh, flesh. I'm really curious about that. Well, you know, the whole idea that you can make a living as an influencer—it's wow. like you're a shill. You're basically hawking products 
Um, totally. Through, no, I totally am with you. Yeah. Through the lens of yourself. And I think that that combined with this sort of pipe dream that the recording industry sold throughout the 70s and 80s uh, via, you know, uh, payola and hype mm-hmm. machines. And then, of course, the MTV wall-to-wall performances. I mean, luckily, I still love Peter Gabriel's song, Sledge Hamlet. But it was the most played video of all time. <laughs> Dude, I, I really put that in my ears a lot. Yeah, I love that song too, though. I'm a huge Peter Gabriel yeah. fan, but <laughs> I think that a lot of younger artists, uh, you know, they were probably babies and kids right. during those days. That's right. If they were even born yet. And somehow all of that hype making machinery oozed into there, it sort of embossed on them that this is acceptable. Or this could somehow work again. And I think social media did make it work for a little while. People were able to make huge amounts of money and show off their lifestyles. But really, um, you know, I hear a whole lot of mediocre stuff. Well, no, and I want to, this has just popped into my head. So, you know, widespread, Colonel Bruce got the mustard stain, but you're planting a seed with the intention of playing in front of 45,000 people. That seed took a long time, took time to germinate and grow. The biggest problem we have, you talk about the shill game going on. People plant a seed and then they plant another one and then they plant another one. And then, so there's no time to foster growth. The bands that do, you got to be in it for the hang because it's a long journey, probably longer today than it was when you were coming. But I just feel like it's a, how can you plant? I mean, that's what I try to do with new media is create content that is going to leave an essence because otherwise what's the point you're just dropping a seed somewhere and, and then you're not even letting it you're not fostering it you're not you're you're, right. you're a gardener i don't word, even tell you this jake you use that word content and you know i've i've seen people taking umbrage with that word and i might be they might be winning me over um you know the whole thing about constant content um <laughs> i cannot believe you know, it. no because i've been using that for a long time to go ahead go ahead when Miles Davis was making, <laughs> through, he was making content. <laughs> Let me just leave that. There. I'm sorry, dude. I, I'm okay. Go ahead, babe. If Maestro Ron Carter should ever hear that I said that, I hope he does because <laughs> you know that man loves making content. Okay, he does. He <laughs> loves making content, but um, yeah, no. It's, okay, I, I dig what you're saying. I dig. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It's it's. I like the word you used, essence, better. You know? Well, leave, leave it with some feeling. You know, are you, if somebody laughed, does it leave somebody a little bit worked up, edgy, or maybe they learn something new? But it's like the influencer, the shill, the, 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 the Ponzi, the, the Madoff schemes. It's all made of, it's just, there's no, there's all fluff there. You know, you yeah, got, there's no real, there's no real um, intent. There's no or real, like, accessing of the first chakra. Point. I mean, Colonel Bruce Hampton loved the first chakra, right? You had to play from that, that lower area. Well, yeah, and he's, Butt-level consciousness. Exactly. Butt-level consciousness, and Bruce has said... Butt-level consciousness is the sickest thing ever, dude. I'm here to put the devil in the room. And by that, we don't mean the evil guy with the pitchfork and the horns that, uh, you know, tortures you for all eternity. We mean the spirit, Hmm. you know, from the butt. The spirit. um, And... I, you know, I think that just comes from a, a good degree of hard work, a good degree of suffering, and a good degree of coming through it all together 
if you're a band. Um, you know, right. individual artists, it's like, okay, you're in control of your destiny. You know, it's you're the only one that has to listen to your feedback. In a band, everybody has to learn to listen to the feedback from each other. And it, it ain't always easy. Oh, believe me, man. I cannot even imagine, especially with the high-level geniuses that are working a lot of times. Sometimes you got some, you know, most times the guys I know are just exceptionally high-level people, but they're also sensitive, and I'm sure that behind closed doors it can get incredibly intense. I, I have to ask you, I know you didn't play a major role, but there's some rumblings that this band might get back together, and for some reason I just feel like they're a much-needed West Coast tonic right now, uh, the band Pacific Range. Love those guys. I yeah. wish they would get back. Yeah, together. Seamus, we just got to push him out of his comfort zone a little bit. But the, I mean, what I'm saying, what what are your memories of that of working with them? Well, that's exactly what I did. There's a whole record. Well, it's actually an EP. Exactly. But we made a record at 25th Avenue, and the whole point was to recut one of their songs out of their comfort zone, and then I asked them to do two new ones. And I'm not sure. Any of them ever knew exactly what was going on? <laughs> um, I think what do you mean, they were, dude? They were they were totally out. I think that the difference between maybe the way Dan Horn produces and the way I produce very different. Um, with Brent Rademacher as the Svengali, um, <laughs> threw them for a loop because Svengali. You know, I didn't want them noodle jamming. For 45 minutes, what I wanted to capture, which I wound up doing, was them fucking around and just, like, rehearsing things. Or I got, you know, Stu playing this amazing, like, organ thing. And I'm like, what is that? And he's like, oh, it's just a little thing I do to practice and warm up. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know, that's that's where Life in the Fast Lane came from. That lick was just a little thing Joe Walsh. Oh, man, dude, that <laughs> is sick. Yeah, they, they so, just, they, they're just not even... They're, they're, they're not in their heads. That you're, you're getting them in the real space, in the real time. And I'm handing them things. I'm like, hey, Seamus, have you ever used an Ebo before? Right. Um, let me put this incredible xenon gas-powered distortion pedal on you and play it with an Ebo. Oh, you know, man. I just was throwing curveballs. I just threw pedals at camp. You know, dude, this is making my day. You're, you're, oh, you're just blowing. You're, th you're like Fernando Valenzuela up there, dude. Well, they just, they did not know what was going on. And I, I wrote poor Nate because I gave him fair warning. I said, I am really hard on drummers. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, in, in Nate is just a Teflon guy. Yeah, I mean, that's just stuff. Anyway, go ahead. Um, you know, and, and so I, <laughs> I'm still not sure if they liked what we came up with, but it was a version of the song Coming After You. Which is on that record. Dude, that's going to be, I'm going to, that's going to be my soundtrack for the next three days, dude. But I made it into a 17-minute patchwork quilt. Um, you know, it was like sort of editing, like the way that uh, In a Silent Way was edited. Uh, not using analog tape, obviously, but... No, yeah. because we only had a day. So, <laughs> But the whole thing was, you know, I wanted this band, who was so great and had such a sound, to kind of be willing to be produced. And I think it really, it knocked them off balance. And... I'm not sure that that's a bad thing, really. I think challenging artists, putting them out of their comfort zone is something that's vital to creating something that isn't comfortable. That when someone listens to it or sees that artwork, they're not just going to go, eh, and move on to the next thing hanging on the wall or coming out of the speakers. 
you know, I want bands that I work with and I want my own band and anything I make, uh, I want, I don't ever want a finger on the fast forward. You know, I want someone to either be like, God, I think I hate this. I better listen to the whole thing. Okay. Yep. I hate it. I really hate it. Or I love it. I'm going to play it again. Or what else has this guy got? Um, and I've really, I've never been comfortable. You know, maybe I was getting comfortable right around before I joined Governor Buell. We spoke about it earlier. Right. Um, but I don't think that comfort's great for creatives. Well, you were, and so you were getting maybe complacent. Mm, maybe. What I'm saying is it so, seems to me like you believe that your best art is created when there's that inner urge, as Joe Henderson would say. You know, to me it's like... Um, there's got to be entropy in the room with the people. Absolutely. With a hive mind like widespread panic does when we're at our best, molecules got to be bouncing against each other and creating heat and friction. You can't have them slowing down, you know? Right. I'm surprised you didn't you go to Nate. I, I'm surprised you didn't go to, to Nate and say to him, I wish you would play this note. <laughs> or I wish you would hit this symbol, dude. Well, I wasn't, all I wanted to do was, was like, Chuck LaBelle, man. <laughs> Brothers Chuck and Bell's sisters. The He's the greatest. Yo, before I let you go, I need to ask you, and, and hopefully you still have the content. I hate to use that word, the clippings, I'm sorry. What was the best sports column you wrote in, high, in your high school newspaper? Oh, my God. You are asking me to call forth the past. Yeah, no, dude, okay. let's go deep. No, it's great oh. that you have that sport, because that's what I try to bring to the bandstand schools. The, sport, the fourth down, fourth quarter. You know, UVM, whatever the biggest rival, Virginia Tech, and we're going for it, and we're going over the edge. Well, you know, I, I can't remember because one of the <laughs> sports writers um, shared with me a column he wrote about the Grateful Dead and quote-unquote deadheads, and he interviewed me and a couple of my friends. No way. He made his sports column about the Grateful Dead. You know what? That, I mean, America was really hip, man. Still was on fire at that time. That is so freaking great. It was so funny. I mean, a little prep school. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Yo, man, great to hear your voice, man. I hope I can see you soon. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Jake. All right, Dave. Be cool, man. You too. Peace. See ya. Later.